0: Hello and welcome to Bean Boss episode number 57, brought to you by FreshBooks Cloud Accounting.
1: All right, you guys, we have Ramit Sethi with us here today, and he is the author of the New York Times bestseller, I Will Teach You To Be Rich, and writes for over 500,000 monthly readers on his website at IWillTeachYouToBeRich.com let's get real say what you mean there (laughs) where he covers psychology personal finance, careers and entrepreneurship and I'm on Ramit's newsletter list and everything that he sends every week I'm like yes amen like he uh, you guys are going to like this one get your business together get yourself into what you do and see it through
0: being boss is hard blending work and life is messy making a dream job of your own isn't easy
1: But getting paid for it, becoming known for it, and finding purpose in it is so doable if you do the work. Being Boss is a podcast for creative entrepreneurs brought to you by Emily Thompson and Kathleen Shannon. Check out our archives at lovebeingboss.com. All right. It is tax time around here. (laughs) We are... We are not scrambling to get our finances in order because we've been using FreshBooks all year. We automate everything. So everything that we spend on our business debit card immediately gets categorized in our FreshBooks expenses in tax-friendly categories that we just get to provide with our CPA. And she'll ask us for things like our profit and loss reports or our cash reports. And it's so easy just to pull up in our FreshBooks cloud accounting system. It's so easy. FreshBooks is the easy to use invoicing software designed to help creative entrepreneurs get organized, save time invoicing, and get paid faster, and also track and organize those expenses so that you're not scrambling at the end of the year. So, try FreshBooks for free for 30 days. Go to freshbooks.com slash being boss and enter being boss in the how did you hear about us section when you sign up. And I have to tell you 30% of you are actually using and buying FreshBooks because it works and it's awesome. Try it out for Hello. Hi. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Thanks for joining us. We appreciate your time. Let's go ahead and just jump in. I want for our bosses who listen to this podcast to, they, they may not know you. And I think I first heard you either on like a Ted talk or maybe it was even Lewis Howell's podcast of the school of greatness. Yeah. It's like my guilty pleasure podcast <laughs> that I listen to. Anyway. Um, so like tell, tell us a little bit about your background and how you got to where you are today.
2: Yep. I uh, So I started learning about personal finance and psychology a long time ago because you know I came from a pretty big family. My parents are immigrants from India and they said okay cool you want to go to college that's great. Well actually every Indian person has to go to college. <laughs> but if you want to go to college you have to get scholarships because we don't have any money to pay for it. And so I'm kind of a weird systems kind of guy. That's, I just, that's the way I think, and I love systems, so I built a system that helped me apply to about 65 or 70 scholarships, and I ended up paying my way through undergrad and grad school at Stanford, and, but the funny thing is the first scholarship I got, or one of the first ones, they wrote the check directly to me. So for a 17-year-old kid, you know, this check of, a, of whatever amount it was, was, was kind of a lot of money, and it was 1999, 2000, and I basically took that money and invested it right in the stock market because that's what you do with your scholarship money. Right? <laughs> and uh, it, it actually didn't work out very well at all because I lost half that money. And I thought that investing meant picking stocks and all that stuff. And meanwhile, you know, I go to college. I decide I better learn how money works. And I'm studying social influence. I'm studying psychology and human behavior. And I just realized that most of the money advice out there was total b s that 's really what got me started down this path so fast forward, I ended up learning about money. I ended up realizing that the typical advice about keep a la- keep a budget and don 't spend money on lattes. nobody really listens to that at all. even the people who write it I actually came to learn and uh, eventually, I started writing a blog which led to you know starting an entire business and That business has been around now over 11 years.
1: And I feel like it's expanded from just talking about money to really the being boss philosophy of finding your dream job, um, making bank, you know, and everything that comes with that. Yeah, I
2: mean, to tell you the truth, the money part of it is actually not the most interesting part to me. I mean, I think money is a part of a rich life, but it's a small part of a rich life. And so, you know, I wrote a book on personal finance, and I was very fortunate. The community had grown. It became a New York Times bestseller. But ultimately, I I have no interest in sitting here talking about asset allocation for the rest of my life. I'd <laughs> rather kill myself. Um, what's more interesting is the other parts of a rich life. Finding a dream job, negotiation, uh, you know, how to earn more, how to start a business, even social skills. Those are the parts of a rich life that are really nuanced and different. But I think for a lot of people, just to start, if you get your money in order, you get it working for you, you automate it, like I spend less than an hour a month on my money, you can actually afford to do the other things you want to do, which are part of a rich life.
1: I love that so much. And we we talked to Jesse from You Need a Budget, who actually introduced us to you or made the connection to bring you on the podcast. So um, for our listeners, listen to that one too, whenever it comes to budgeting. But um, okay, so Ramit, what does it mean to live a rich life? Like, What are some of the other aspects that play into that? And what... Like, what do you think is the attitude there? And, and really, I guess what I'm trying to get at is I feel like a lot of the bosses that listen to our show are really freaked out and come to entrepreneurship with a scarcity mindset. And for me, I feel like there's no better opportunity to make a ton of money than to be working for yourself.
2: Mm. Yeah, I, I think that's a very interesting way of looking at it. I agree. I, you know, we have to remember that the type of advice we get is mainstream it's very much written for the lowest common denominator so if you open up any magazine on money or you flip to any typical book on personal finance, what is the advice they give you? They say, keep a budget and they say don't spend money on lattes In fact, don't buy jeans and forget about buying shoes or a vacate. forget about it. Just save it all and one day you know you'll have enough to maybe scrape by in retirement now. The philosophy that I have is that, first of all, there's a limit on how much you can cut, but there's no limit on how much you can earn. And I want to explain that for a second. A lot of people take that to say, oh, Ramit tells me that I can buy like $1,000 jeans. And my answer is, yeah, if you want to buy $1,000 jeans, that's awesome. I'll show you how. I'll show you how to earn more, how to negotiate your salary, how to increase your revenue, but you have to make sure that you can actually afford it, right? So, I think most of the advice out there about money is actually telling you what you can't do. No, you can't go here. No, you can't do that. No, how dare you think about ordering a cocktail with dinner. But my philosophy is actually use money to say yes. If you want to travel, if you want to buy a really nice coat, if you want to fly your parents first class to visit you, do it. Let's just figure out how to make the money support that rich life.
0: I agree with that so hardcore. One of my very favorite things about about, you know, being an independent entrepreneur doing what I want to do and not under anyone else is that idea of unlimited income potential. Like you can't have that if you are working in a day job that's salaried and it doesn't matter how much overtime you put in because there's gonna be a cap on how much that that check is at the end of every two weeks or whatever it is. I love the fact that we have the opportunity to to make as much as we want and we've talked on the podcast before about how how a lot of people have this mindset of like if you want to do something you know it's about cutting out things so that you can afford to do what you want to do but for our crowd it's not about cutting things out it's like what can we launch what product can we can we get into the world what can we make um it's not about cutting but making um that I think makes our crowd a pretty pretty cool unique group of people. It's, it's, it's why I like to do what I like to do.
2: Yeah. That, I love that attitude with entrepreneurs. I also think that sometimes entrepreneurs, um, they kind of go into this harried frenzied phrase. And you'll hear this a lot with entrepreneurs. They'll use words like, I'm overwhelmed. And <laughs> just to be honest with you, I've never known a top performer to use that phrase, I'm overwhelmed. So I'd actually caution people against that kind of self-talk. And the reason I kind of bring this up is that I think sometimes entrepreneurs need to take a step and say, let me actually get control of my money. I can't just create products and earn my way out of every problem. You actually do need to manage your money. You need to know your costs. You need to know your spending. There's no doubt about that. And I think sometimes entrepreneurs get in the mindset of, oh, I'll just earn my way out of every problem. You know, you could earn a million dollars, but if you're spending 99% of that, it's pointless. But at the same time, something that the most mainstream doesn't get is that uh, revenue solves most problems. Not all. It doesn't solve your emotional problems or your, rel- <laughs> you know, it doesn't solve those things. But it actually solves most problems when it comes to business. You can hire out the best people for the customer support team or for product development and you can build this virtuous cycle. I just want to make sure entrepreneurs know you have to balance it all. It's not about just earning and spending 99% of it. I know a lot of entrepreneurs. I'd be happy to talk about that. Um, I also know a lot of people who are very scarcity minded. And they're like, oh, let me cut back on all these things. And the truth is we are cognitive misers. We have limited attention, limited willpower. And so if you're spending that limited willpower, focusing on saving $3 a day on your latte, who cares? In the grand scheme of things, that doesn't add up to anything. If you want your latte, great, get it, feel joyful and caffeinated in the morning, but you got to make sure you're managing the rest of your spending and your earning.
1: Okay, I've been wanting to talk to someone about passive income, and I feel like you're the guy to talk to about this. (laughs) So I find that a lot of aspiring creatives feel almost entitled to passive income, or at least this is a conversation that's happening in our sphere, like passive income, passive income, like that they can just make an ebook and that's enough. <laughs> so I, I've been wanting to talk to someone about why passive income isn't so passive. Yeah. And I feel like you're the man.
2: Okay, well, I, I've been earning passive income for probably um, seven or eight years.
1: And how passive has it been? Uh, when did it become passive?
2: Well... Okay, let's, that's a weird question. (laughs) I mean, because what does that really mean? So I'll I'll give you an example. The first time I ever sold something, I had been writing my blog for about three years. I had been writing it three to four times a week, really in-depth stuff. I had never charged a cent for anything. I didn't even have ads on my site. So if you, it wasn't a business, I was losing money. But I didn't want people to think that I was just in it to make a quick buck. Anyway, finally, one day I decided to create an ebook. And this was in 2006. And I was, I have to tell you the truth, I was actually petrified of selling anything because I had a scarcity mentality. I thought that selling was bad and that people would leave and call me a sellout. And you can actually go to that sales copy, it's still online. I wrote it in a blog post. You can Google. Uh, Ramit's 2007 Guide to Kicking Ass. That's what I called it. All right, is a 30-page ebook, and I had it professionally done and all this stuff. So I wrote this cowardly sales copy where I said, "Hi guys, um, I've been writing for a long time, and I think this might be useful. And yeah, I know you could probably learn a lot of this stuff for free, but." I think blah, blah, blah. Okay. $4 and 95 cents. Oh so no. And
1: you're that. apologizing oh, for it. I'm <laughs> apologizing.
2: I'm, I'm doing what I, what we call selling from the heels. Like mm. I'm like trying to make my case, but I'm like halfway out the door because I'm afraid and you could see it all. It's still live. And guess what? Everything I was afraid of happened. You can see the comments. They're still up. I left them all up. Um, people called me a sellout. Somebody said, uh, this site jumped the shark. Somebody said, oh, so all along, this has been about, I will teach I to get rich, right? Like, <laughs> like And I'm like, oh. in my head, I'm like, you, I mean, I wanted to curse them out. And I felt that sort of pain at the bottom of your stomach. I felt it for like a week. Oh, it's okay? the worst. It's the worst. And I, I felt, I'll tell you what I felt. I felt betrayed because I had been writing for three years and giving everything I had learned for free. I felt that there was not loyalty. Uh, I felt that like basically my experiment had failed because I didn't do it to make mo- $4 and 95 cents. How much money can you make off that?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, I just did it to see what would happen and I thought I'd failed. And in fact, just to show you how seriously uh, I underestimated, I didn't think more than 50 people would buy it. So I didn't even set up a fulfillment system. I literally said, click this link to pay through PayPal And then I'll just email you the ebook, okay? There was no automation at all because I didn't think anybody would buy it. Well, what happened was I'm getting these comments, these sort of negatives, arguably hateful comments. And then, but behind the scenes, people are buying. And they're like buying a lot. And it kind of blew my mind because I realized that there's this vocal minority who really hates um, paying for stuff. They expect everything free. They're freeloaders. And I realized that and it took me about three years to realize this honestly it was a very brutal time. But it took me three years to realize, that's not my customer. Those people will complain. It doesn't matter what price you say. they're going to say, "Oh, 495, that's absurd. Maybe if it was 45 cents, I would consider it." Um, other people said, "Remit, uh, I hate PayPal. I'm philosophically against them. Will you set up a place where I can mail a check? And, you know, I was so naive at the time. Do you know that I actually believed that people would... Do, and I actually set up a P.O. box. I went out of my way. I set up a P.O. box. Because all these people in the comments were like, oh, I'm not... PayPal sucks. I'm going to mail it. And I got a grand total of zero checks. Okay? <laughs> so, but, but what I learned... Uh, yeah. What I learned was, you know, over time, I think that ebook generated something like $5,000 over the course of maybe two years. Um... It really opened my eyes to the fact that what people say versus what they do is very, very different. It also opened my eyes to the fact that uh, you have to choose your market very carefully, very carefully. That's one of the most important lessons I've learned. And I will tell you that since then, I have created products that have sold. I mean, I laugh at the $5 price. I've now created products that sell uh, at $2,000 completely passively. I've created products that sell at $25,000 and at every range in between $5 and $25,000. So going up that value chain has been very illuminating. I'd be happy to talk about any of it. But the main message I would say for people is, you know, if you're getting this kind of feedback, you want to really listen carefully. First of all, it's okay to feel bad. I felt horrible. And I felt bad for about three years, to tell you the truth, regarding sales. Um, But I just said, you know what? I'm not going to let this vocal minority dictate my business. I know I have something valuable the world needs to hear. I just need to find the right people who are willing to pay for
1: value. So I have a question then. Do you feel like maybe your copy itself was egging like the haters on? You know, I mean, do you feel like um, almost like you were were showing them your insecurities and then they looked at them? Or do you think it was like your specific tribe that you were attracting were just kind of asses <laughs> <laughs> um, or the I vocal think, minority of Well, I tribe. think both,
2: but you know what? I don't blame them. I blame myself. And I think that's what an entrepreneur needs to do. Um, you know, if one person uh, kind of complains about the price, uh, they're probably just a freeloader. If two, they're just a freeloader. If it's three or 10 or a hundred, it's your fault. You're the CEO. You cultivated that audience. It's your fault. And it was my fault. Why? because I had never asked them to put any skin in the game. So how can I expect someone who's been coming to the party for free for three years to suddenly pay? I mean, of course they're mad. It's my fault. It's like raising a spoiled kid. You, you wake up one day, you got a 16-year-old son or daughter, and you realize with horror you raised this monster. And it's like, who do you blame? It's not their fault. It's yours. So that's one. But if you look at the copy... You're exactly right. I mean, I was inviting it. And honestly, I recently created a $12,000 course. And the copy was, I'll just give you some numbers. The first time I created a $500 course, I got something like 200 complaints about price. Like a lot of people saying, how dare you, blah, blah, blah. When we created a $12,000 course and over 1 million people heard about it, I received less than five complaints about price. Again, we had hundreds of complaints about a $500 course, less than 10, about a $12,000 course. Why? Because we had selected the audience more carefully and the copy was bulletproof. We basically said, look, here's who it's not for. This probably isn't right for you. In fact, we don't allow anyone with credit card debt to join us. That's one of my philosophies. Costs us millions of dollars a year, but it's the right thing to do. And the people who it was right for raised their hand. And the people who it wasn't right for, they knew it wasn't for them. I still gave them value. Enjoy the free emails. But it was like I walked in and I was very confident about who I was selling to. I knew who I was selling to. You know, it was just a skill that took years to develop. Um, and, but I have to say my life is a lot better now that I don't sort of deal with those freeloaders day to day.
1: Hey bosses, did you have a case
0: of FOMO? That stands for the fear of missing out.
1: When you saw all the Being Boss magic go down for our Being Boss vacation in New Orleans?
0: Fear not, friends, because we are planning another boss vacation this spring in Miami! So it was really hard to figure out what location
1: to go to, but we've never been to Miami. And the reason why we do these boss vacations is to cultivate our creative pack, see different parts of the world, get some face time with each other, connect with each other, and live the boss life. So to learn more details about this boss vacation, just go to lovebeingboss.com Miami.
0: We hope to see you there.
1: So I wanna talk about developing well, other two things I'm gonna talk about, but first want going gonna talk about developing the skills that it takes to go from being apologetic about a five-dollar product to confidently selling a twelve thousand or twenty-five thousand dollar product. Like what goes into that? Can you tell us a little bit about your own like personal Transformation there, like did that take like a ton of therapy time? <laughs> <Wait>. <laughs> you,
2: you know what? Or it, business
1: it's... coaching? Like, wait, how do you do that?
2: Well, it took a lot of work. I, it's, I think it's important. I used to look at people who would sell these very high value products, and I would say like, oh wow, they're just more confident than I am, and that, I think that's a really destructive mindset to have because you're basically saying they were born with something I don't have and I can never have. And I learned along the way that what I should have said was, wow, they have skills that I don't have yet. So they know how to write copy. They know how to select their audience. They know how to price a product and deliver an amazing experience. That would have been way better than what I said, which was, oh, they're just better than me. (laughs) You know? And so I want every, the reason I want to be here today is to share some of the things I learned and for entrepreneurs, I would just start using the word yet. They have skills I don't have yet. Um, uh, uh, here's another thing I learned. You don't go from $4.95 to $25,000. It's impossible. And in fact, we have a course where we teach people how to create, uh, create a business and go from zero to launch. That's the name of the course. And a lot of people come in and the first thing they want to do is create a $2,000 product. And I tell them no absolutely not. Why? Because the sophistication you need to create a $2000 product is so high that there's no way to jump from 0 to a $2000 product. It took us years to do that. So the $4.95 thing, I learned things like copy, I learned about fulfillment, etc. There's a different price at $50, you're going to create a different type of product at 100, then we created it at 500. We learned at a thousand. We messed up. We did it again. Two thousand. Like each of these price points has different product features and expectations. For example, if you're selling a five thousand dollar product, people are going to expect some kind of personal interaction, whether it's a phone call or a webinar, etc. There's also a taxonomy of pricing, so people kind of understand that an ebook plus videos might cost like ninety-seven bucks but at 4.97 they're expecting more than an ebook. And so there's this well-understood taxonomy of pricing. If you google $4.95 to $12,000 Ramit, uh, if you google that, there's a video we've put out there which shows how we went from $4.95 to $12,000. There's a lot of subtlety. So my suggestion is basically step by step. Don't try to we say don't try to be 40 before you're 40. Just try to start where you are and start at the at I start at a low price point. And then understand the ramifications as you move up the value chain.
1: I love that. And we'll be sure to include links to some of the things that you're referencing in our show notes at lovebeingboss.com. Okay. So I have a more personal question because I'm seeing how much work you're putting out. I see that it's really top-notch. And I... I do believe that you're really confident in what you're delivering. So you obviously work hard. I know that you have a team, but how are you balancing? Like you said earlier, it's a balancing act when it comes to finances, but it's also a balancing act when it comes to, you know, your family and your day job and having a side hustle, um, like a lot of our listeners do. So, I, do you have any insights on? like having a life while you're working to be the absolute best? Like, is it possible to have both?
2: Well, well, I'll speak to myself. Um, I, you know, I, I once wrote an email to our email list and I asked them, what's something you claim you want to do, but you haven't actually done it? And this one woman wrote back to me and she had a really interesting comment. She said, you know, I keep telling myself that I want to go for a run three times a week, but I never do. And I wrote back to her, I said, why don't you just go for a run once a week? And she said, why would I do that? Going for a run once a week doesn't do anything. (laughs) So in other (laughs) words, she would rather dream about going for a run three times a week than actually go once a week. And I think that's something that I learned to to grapple with and to try to work through for myself. Like, of course, I would like to start my day at 7.30 a.m. and work in 15-minute increments, but I would be better if I actually picked like three to five key things I want to accomplish every day and then did that. So that was a big mindset shift for me. Uh, The way I think about my productivity and balance is, first of all, if it's not on my calendar, it doesn't exist and it has to be there. So I am religious about putting things on my calendar. Second, I make it as easy for myself to succeed as possible. Uh, certainly, not saying that I've solved the productivity problem at all, but uh, like everything is in its place, so I'm not spending a ton of time deciding what to wear. I kind of thought that through. Uh, my keys are always in the same place. My food is—I open my fridge; it's all there. Like a lot of planning goes into to having a really productive week. In fact, I think most of the You know, I always say in life, 80% of the work is done before you ever set foot in the room. So, you know, when you open your closet, is everything there? Is it all folded? Is it ready to go? Um, When you open your fridge, is it all there? When you're ready to leave the house, is everything where it needs to be? I think those little details are actually surprisingly important and... The third thing is balance. I just, you know, can't,
1: sorry, I just can't wait for my husband to listen to this episode because he's going to oh, yeah? see <laughs> Kathleen. Oh, you
2: need listen, to put your I don't shit in
1: his place.
2: <laughs> I don't mean to be, you know, marital dispute guy. I hope I'm not causing problems here. Uh, no,
1: it's good. It's good.
2: All right. Yeah, I mean, and also like sleep and um, like for me, I really like I work from home a lot, and so I want to be around people. So I make it a point to like, make sure that I am out with friends, family, et cetera. Otherwise, I kind of go crazy. I think knowing that, I don't feel guilty about stepping outside and uh, you know, doing social stuff or just vegging, watching Netflix or hanging out with my nieces and nephews, whatever it may be. Um, I need that. I think we all need some kind of rejuvenation and we all know what it is for us.
0: I really love the, what you're saying about, um, about having everything in its place. So we talk about, we talk about things like, you know, balance and focus and all of those things, like in a, in a grander, more like abstract scale almost. Um, but I think that bringing light to those like really finite little pieces of your life is such like a key shift for a lot of people. Like, you know, making sure your desk is, (laughs) is organized and making sure your socks are put together in their drawer so you don't spend half the morning looking for like mixed match socks um, I think those little pieces we don't bring it up enough but um, but I think it's huge a, a lot of people in our feeds lately these days are talking about the life-changing magic of tidying up which I know Kathleen and I have both done and just sort of reminded me of that um, so if you haven't checked out that book listeners or remit um, I think that's a really good place to start in terms of getting those little life pieces put together so that you can actually be productive
2: yeah that's an amazing book. I also get inspired by uh hotels. So if you go to a really nice hotel or even a bathroom at a really nice hotel or bar, you'll notice that they've really been thoughtful about what goes where. So for example, um I stayed at a hotel where I didn't know where the hairdryer was, but I just opened the cabinet where I thought it would be, and there it was. Perfectly ready ready to go. And I just smiled. I said, wow, somebody really thought this through. And I want m- my life to be like that. Almost like if you think about uh, a chef at a great kitchen, they don't have to move. Everything is exactly where it needs to go. And I wanted to create one of the, I don't really do New Year's resolutions. I do themes. And one year my theme was um, to surround myself with beauty. And beauty meant everything from you know, learning about art a little bit more uh, having a beautiful apartment, redecorating it, kind of just learning what goes into making things beautiful. Because I kind of was raised to be like, if you came to visit me in college, there'd just be like a poster on the wall.
1: You know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like that was,
2: and I wanted to learn what it's like to be an adult. So I spent the year learning. I read all these magazines and stuff. And one of the things that I did, I thought I was pretty efficient, but I hired a professional organizer, a personal organizer, to come in and just take a look at my workflow. And basically this guy, really nice guy, very non judgmental, And he came in and he was like, okay, tell me about your date. And it's, I'm like walking around my apartment and I feel embarrassed because <sighs> there's these piles of papers, right? And like, I'm a piler. I just pile these papers <laughs> up. Like I'll get to it later. And he goes, okay. Um, he's like got his clipboard out. He's like, how long have those uh, piles been there, and I'm like, oh god, I want to die right now, so, <laughs> because they'd been there for like, th- like literally three and a half to four years. Oh. I'm like, oh, I gotta get to those things, you know? And uh, like, I live in a Manhattan apartment. It's not like I got a huge garage or something. So I go, uh, you know, they've been there a little while. He goes, over a year. I go, yeah. So like, that's putting it charitably. And he goes, okay, well, we're gonna learn what to do with these piles, so you're not gonna have them anymore. And he basically he taught me how to be more efficient. He taught me how to process things. He taught me how to get over some of the mental blocks I had. And the thing I learned from that was, number one, stop being so judgmental of yourself. I was very critical about my inability to handle piles. And I think instead of turning it into this emotional battle with yourself, this guy just came in and said, okay, I've seen this a million times. Matter of fact, here's what we're going to do. And it became less emotional and more just functional. And the second thing is learn from the best. No matter how good you are, there's always somebody you can learn from, whether it's getting their book, hiring them for two hours of consulting, whatever. Anyone can learn from the best. Every professional athlete has a coach. I believe that everyone should be learning from at least one amazing person. Don't try to do it all yourself.
1: Amen. (laughs) So uh, what's your theme for this year? Do you have one?
2: Um, Yes. I'm working on articulating it perfectly, but it's basically um, to meet people where they are and um, see the best in people. And that's something I'm working on is to be just a little bit more positive about uh, just everything and uh, a little bit less critical, meeting people where they are and knowing that other different people take different life paths to get where they want to go.
0: Nice. I feel like there's probably like a yogi word out there somewhere. Please, oh I,
2: I hope there is because that was really long winded.
1: There's got to be a Sanskrit word for that, <laughs> right? For that kind of non non judgment. Um, I'm super. I'm pretty judgmental too. I feel like you are. It took having a baby to be like, oh, this is compassion.
2: <laughs> what, what happened to you when you had like? How did you stop getting being judgmental with? the baby
1: well so like I had to go through my shit a little bit like I had so I kind of got knocked on my ass he didn't sleep and I became kind of a wreck and I was like oh like other people might be going through really hard things like sleep deprivation whenever they're acting that way or um kind of just balancing work and life in a really real way um that's kind of how it went down for me. But it might also just be getting older, you know, like getting older. But I definitely had like, I feel like in my life, I've had to really experience things to understand them. And that comes from learning styles, but also just life situations. So learning what it's like to um to be, you know, to like have postpartum depression, or, you know, I had to experience it. So I guess that's kind of just in general, what made me be more compassionate. But I also just think, I don't know. There's some for me having a baby was the thing that I needed to crack my heart open in that mm. way. But I I don't really know quite how to articulate it best. No, wow.
2: That yeah. that's um that's very enlightening. <laughs> it really is. I mean, I think it's um pretty powerful to hear how your experience of actually going through it, it became less theoretical and really helped you empathize with other people uh, who might be going through similar things. I it's yeah, or
1: even different things, but like their own, you know, struggle. I guess like it's just one of the first times in my life that the struggle became really real. Mm. Um, so, you know, like for every dark cloud, there's a silver lining. But man, those clouds can feel dark sometimes. But yeah. that's what it took for me. I don't think it takes, I don't think, I don't condone for everyone to have a baby to learn that. It's just what I needed to learn that. All right, I want to rewind a little bit to whenever you were talking about investing, And you invest in the stock markets um, because that's what you thought is the way that you invest money. Um, What are you investing in these days? Money, time, energy. um, What what does investment look like for you today? Oh, I
2: love that question. Love it. Uh, Okay, I have a few unconventional things. First of all, I think entrepreneurs have this weird belief that they are too good to invest in the stock market. That's totally incorrect. Um, A lot of them think that, oh, I should just invest in my own business because that's the best investment of all. And the answer is yes, and yes, you should invest in the stock market as well. Um, The mistake I made when I was 17 or 18 years old was I invested in individual stocks. Everyone should be investing in the stock market in a traditional, low-cost, target date fund. I cover all this in my book. You can get it for free online. I mean, don't think you're too smart. Do not think, do not be so arrogant as to think you're too smart to not invest in the stock market. The stock market is the single biggest wealth creator in the history of mankind. And so whether my business does well or not, I know that I will continue to invest in the stock market. I do automatically and regularly and it's just there. So no matter what happens, that's great. Um, second thing, of course I invest heavily in my business. Um, we, we have a belief in like ultra high quality. So we'll spend years developing and testing our courses. That means we try to hire the very best people to work with us and the best equipment and technology and training. So, so I would say that's probably the largest investment of all that I make. Um, time. I think that, uh, I mean, friends and family, it's really important to me to be able to spend time with them. So I kind of craft a life around that. Also, um, for me, health is pretty important. Working out, I have a trainer, uh, chef, those kind of things. Um, that's probably the biggest luxury that I have. Um, Wait,
1: you think that's a luxury?
2: Well, I think it is a luxury when you're, you know, you have a... Trainer and, and a, a chef. And a a sh- I mean, come on, let's be honest. Like- <laughs>
1: okay. But like investing in your health, I I am a total fitness nerd. Like yeah. I listen to like the Bulletproof Executive. Like those are the podcasts I listen to. And um. so I, I see so many relationships between fitness and like your performance there and also money in a re- weird way, but then also entrepreneurship and just kind of like the discipline it takes to have all of those things are so connected. So I'm curious if, what? well, let's just go there. Like yeah, what yeah. is your health thing? Like let's, let's geek out on this. Okay, if let's do to. it. Like let's talk a little bit about your health and fitness journey okay. and how that's maybe impacted your philosophy on entrepreneurship oh, or even money.
2: This is, you know what? Out of everything you asked, this is actually my favorite question.
1: Okay. <laughs> I mean,
2: seriously, I could talk about this. The, but nobody asks, everybody wants to know about like, hey, what's your opt-in conversion rate? And I'm like, ah, oh God, just I'd rather be dead than talk about I'm this I'm like, right let's now.
1: talk about what you're lifting. What okay, thank eating? you.
2: Oh my God. <laughs> what are your macros? <laughs> All right, let's make sure we have enough tape for this. Okay, okay, so let me tell you this. I am more proud of my fitness journey in the last six years than I am of the business journey. And I think that the two are totally intertwined. I think that if I had followed my default life path, I would probably be like a Cisco network engineer wearing like a really big polo shirt, you know? And I would be really skinny. I used to be 127 pounds. Uh, I'm just under six feet tall. I was a really skinny guy. I had the um, measurements of a supermodel, female nice. supermodel. Yep. Nice. And uh, not good, I don't think, for a guy. So, so I'll tell you the truth. You know, like moving to New York, and just seeing everyone here is so attractive, I was like, all right, I better step my game up. <laughs> and I knew that I wanted to get a trainer, but it took me four months to walk across the street to go into the gym and ask for a trainer. Because truthfully, I wasn't raised like that. Um, there were so many mental blocks in my head. First of all, Indian culture isn't really about going to the gym that much. And second, the idea that like you would pay some guy... Why would you pay him that $100 an hour? You could learn that on your own in a book, you know? And it's ironic that my business was doing pretty well and I still couldn't get out of that uh, mindset from childhood. Anyway, I finally did it. I got a trainer and I walked in. The guy at the front desk was like, okay, what's your goal? Is it health or aesthetics? I was like, aesthetics, I don't care about health. <laughs> and so he was like, no problem. And I started doing it and, you know, over uh, since then... I've been with the trainer for um, probably over four years. Uh, I've never missed more than two sessions in those four years total. And uh, doing, uh, I mean, training with him and learning more about macros and all kinds of stuff has been absolutely transformational, not just from a physical perspective, but also mental and even business. There's so many connections I see every week between what we do in the gym and what we do in business.
1: I was even periscoping earlier today, talking about what to do whenever you're kind of feeling like lazy bones. And I was like, you know, whenever I'm working out, well, one, it's on my calendar. And so it's the most important meeting of my days, my workout, honestly. And even if I don't want to go, it's on my calendar. I've made a commitment. I'm just putting on my shoes and going. So the same thing with work. Like I don't always want to work, but it's on my calendar. It's on my to-do list. And I just open up the document, whether I'm writing, whether I'm designing, Um, I just open up the file, you know, and that's kind of the equivalent of lacing up your shoes, right?
0: Emily here coming at you to talk about managing your schedule. One of the hardest things about being boss is how many people can be vying for your attention from clients and customers to online buddies, real life friends and family, and more scheduling time to focus on your work or yourself gets more and more important. The more boss you get Our friends at Acuity Scheduling are here to help you take back your calendar, giving you the functionality you need to easily block out times for focus and leaving time open for checking in with clients and friends with an easy-to-use interface that matches your actual schedule with available appointment times making it impossible for your schedule to get hijacked by another meeting. Schedule clients without sacrificing your soul sign up for your free 60-day trial of Scheduling Sanity at AcuityScheduling.com slash being false. Now, let's get back at it.
1: But, um... So wait, okay. Like I still want to nerd out though on fitness. So are your goals still aesthetics or has it moved to health?
2: Um, I th- Well, I'm very healthy now. So I eat basically, like I said, I have a chef. My chef coordinates with my trainer who coordinates with oh, a nutritionist. Nice. I set up a system so it all happens automatically. And I just open my fridge and the perfectly calibrated food is there and I eat it. Um, this was my big thing. You know, I um, they say if you want to... Track what's important in your life, look at your calendar, and look at your spending. And for me, if you look at my calendar and my spending, some of the biggest areas are working out and food. Me and too. <laughs> so, so in a way, I mean, while it is a pretty big extravagance, I'm really proud that I am conscious that this is where I want to spend my time and money. And, you know, it's reflected. Um, but let me tell you something that's interesting. When I was, like, growing my business and... I wasn't particularly healthy or anything. I mean, I was fine, but I would read these interviews with CEOs and the first question they always ask is like, what's your morning ritual? And these big shot CEOs, the first thing they always answer is, I wake up and I go to the gym. And I would read that and I would skip right over it every time because I was looking for, you know, what's their productivity system? What software do they use to stay in touch for CRM? And I just, I wasn't ready to hear the part about health and fitness. I didn't understand the connection. I was kind of like, yeah, 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 they all talk about it, but that's not me. I'm not that kind of guy. I don't want to be one of those protein drinking jocks. (laughs) I had all this weird self-talk, you know? Like so many entrepreneurs, oh, I never do that. I'm not a salesy person. Like I would tell myself these weird phrases. Where did it come from? I have no idea. I just had these weird stereotypes. Well, when I started to like learn and surround myself with people who were more into fitness, I started to realize that, first of all, there was a lot of stuff I didn't know. I was just making half this stuff up about protein. I didn't even know what protein was. And then getting help, like I could have read a bunch of books, but the fact is I wasn't. And so sometimes if you know that there's something you want to accomplish, but you just are not doing it, you can actually pay your way out of that problem. You can hire a trainer. Trust me, you're going to show up when you have that spending you've already done. So that's that's my psychology insight from there. If you want to talk about... Uh macros and lifts and stuff, I'd love to talk about. I don't know how many of your readers care. <laughs>
1: right, they're like, shut up. No, but know. you know, um, I after I had my baby, I started doing macros and bodybuilding and all of nice. that. Nice. Decided not to compete or anything because I feel like a lot of people develop eating disorders and kind of skewed body image issues that I was not down for. But um, I, I think that stuff is so fascinating. And like you, I see so many parallels between working out and being healthy. So one of the things I was going to say whenever you talk we're talking about systems I was thinking literally staying hydrated is one of my biggest business tools. Like if I can just stay hydrated, I'm less irritable. I don't get headaches. I don't get as much brain fog. It's kind of silly, but I think it's huge. And that's that's a big investment that I put in myself. Um, so I just think it's really interesting and fun. And okay, so one of the things I wanted to also say about kind of being where you're at and even scaling a business, sometimes I think about health and fitness so much the entrepreneur in me is like, okay, how can I, how can I convert this into like some sort of business something? But then the other part of me is like, okay, here's where I'm at. What I'm an expert in is personal branding. You know, like that's where I'm at, not fitness so much, but kind of acknowledging that maybe one day I can grow into that somehow. And I feel like that's something that you've done with your business is you've set it up as a, you know, niche with, with, I uh, with finances, but that it's able to kind of slowly evolve. You know, yeah. into different things. I,
2: I never would have predicted that I would be writing about the things I am now. So, for example, um, when I started off, I was writing about personal finance and I got really in detail on that. And I wrote the book and I, you know, I answered questions and built systems for like probably about 10 years on personal finance. But as I said, that was just a small part of a rich life. Then it, I was like, you know, I, wanna, I went on book tour and sometimes your most interesting ideas come from the most unexpected places. I asked the people on book tour in just these random cities around the country, what do you want me to write more about? What would help? And that's when they said, love your personal finance stuff, but I want to know how to earn more. And that was kind of a big aha to me. So I started digging in, d- doing a lot of research. It took us a couple of years to really perfect the first course we were going to offer on that. But over time, you know, now I have an ultimate guide on social skills and, oh, and salary negotiation. I think that sometimes you have to let it breathe, like they let wine breathe. If I had tried to create um, a course on starting a business on day one, that would have been ridiculous. I, I didn't even know how to do business myself. But, and if I had tried to create one on social skills, well, I wouldn't have had the sophistication to do that. There are things right now that I've put aside for, the, for about three years because I don't know how to do it yet. But I know that one day I hope I figure that out and then, you know, I can, I can make that work. So to me, it's interesting. You have fitness. The way I approach that is I have exactly the same things. I have interest in these different areas. I kind of write it on a piece of paper and then I revisit it every six to 12 months. And if I figured something out, maybe it's the right time. If not, I can wait another year.
1: I think it's cool that you have that patience of waiting a couple of years for a product to be just right, and I feel like that's a challenge for a lot of entrepreneurs is waiting to release something until it's perfect, which I feel like you're good at doing. But then also, at what point do you just say, "Okay, I need to launch"?
2: Okay, can I can I talk about this? Because yes,
1: I would love for you to talk about it.
2: This is uh, this right here has been worth millions and millions of dollars to us. Okay, And I believe it's one of our secret sauces. i want to talk about this. Um, the amount of people I see online creating um, shitty... Is it okay if I say that? Yeah.
1: We have we have a big red E next to our podcast. <laughs>
2: oh, great. Okay. Um, just why, why create a shitty course or product just to get it out in the marketplace? And if you really dig into this, let's dig into the psychology. A lot of people say, well, I got to get it out. I need to lean startup, this and that. And if you ask them, hey, have you ever bought a product where you didn't love it? Oh, yeah. What'd you do? Refunded it immediately. Would you ever buy from that person again? No. And so we're treating other people exactly the opposite of the way we would want to be treated. And I want to give you some actual numbers uh, internally here. So we have, we have products that we, we're now in year uh, 2.5 of testing this one product. It's not even going to be out for a long time. We're just not there yet. Now, we have the resources and the patience to be able to do that, but we also know that by the time it comes out, we can virtually guarantee it will be very successful. The way that we do that is not just hope and pray and spend three years and a lot of money. We systematically test it along the way. I'm not saying you need to test something for three years. I do think that in every experience we've had, if the time we spend to make it great pays off way 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 more. So we had one course we spent about 6 months creating. It wasn't it wasn't a great course, okay? The way it was launched, it wasn't great. We had another course we spent about 12 to 14 months on. We really took the extra time. That second course generated millions and millions of dollars more than the first course. So I'm all for testing and agile and all of that. We do all of that. But In our experience, every time you build a super high quality product, you instantly set yourself apart from everyone else. Everyone. Because most of the market is just creating low quality junk. So, you know, and the way we know this is we measure our retention rates. We measure repurchase rates. Um, One example is our customers repurchase at a rate 2,300% higher than non-customers. What does that mean? It means that once people buy one thing from us, they usually love it. So they keep coming back. And if you approach your business with the idea of, we call them students or customers for life, then you're going to have a really long-term approach rather than let's monetize for 70 bucks and then we'll somehow find more suckers to sell to. I hate that. I hate that view. I believe in craftsmanship. I think every time you create something that's world-class, you will generate way more profit, way more happy students or customers. And that's how you build a really long-term business.
1: That's really inspiring. It, and I think that my problem and maybe a lot of the entrepreneurs listening is just the sense of urgency. Like if I don't get it out now, I could die. Or maybe what if podcasts aren't relevant in two years? You know, so for example, like Emily and I are working on a product right now teaching other people how to podcast with a couple of our buddies who also have a podcast. And um and it's like what if we don't get it out now? Like someone will beat us to it. And there's just that sense of urgency there, but um, I'm inspired now to be a little more patient.
2: But that's the, yeah. And let's, let's spend a second on that. If you're building something that could potentially expire in two years, what are you doing? Oh, good point. Why why are you wasting your time on something that's so temporal that in two years it's pointless? Let me give you an example. Uh, We created a product recently um, and our designers came back with like three to five logo options. And I looked at them and I said, look guys, this product will be around 15 to 20 years from now. Do you think these logos stand the test of time? And that completely reframed the way that they designed it. They had come up with these somewhat gimmicky logos. And I said, you know, if it's 2025 or 2030, do you think people would want to buy this? And, and instantly they realized the sort of timescale we're dealing with. If you're playing in a $50 sandbox or you're playing on a one-year scale, what are you doing?
1: Mm-hmm. Hmm. I, I've got a lot to think about now. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Emily and I are going to have a long meeting after this. Right. I'm just kidding.
2: <laughs>
0: Scratch our year plans, we're done guys. Right. No,
2: like you know what? For the way the way that we think about it is this. We say, look, we we know, we believe that we create really great world-class material. And we don't just say that to be arrogant. We always are listening, we're asking people to reply to our emails, we're doing tons of surveys. Like we're really keeping our ears and eyes open. So, assuming that we are creating great stuff, we believe that it's just a matter of time. Before somebody comes and buys from us, now it could take them a week. It could take them five years. We see both in our data. We see both of those, but it's just a matter of time. That means all we need to do is continue creating amazing material and occasionally give them the option to join. Totally different than hurry up! I'm overwhelmed. We need to do this launch. Otherwise, the podcast market's gonna go away. Like. That, that whole mindset of being overwhelmed and rushed and frenzied and harried, it's like you're, comp- you're doing what everyone else is doing. Yeah. And I would rather play... like You know what I heard? I heard a great quote. You never hear anyone in a Mercedes commercial screaming. <laughs> never. <laughs> and so ask yourself, what kind of business are you building? We Mercedes. Ne- <laughs> Bingo. So if you're truly building a Mercedes, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with... Um, like Kia. Kia is a great business, okay? McDonald's, amazing business. There's nothing wrong with that. But you can't claim you're building a Mercedes business and then offer a 50% discount. You can't. It makes no sense. You can't claim you're building a Mercedes business and then roll out an ebook or a course that's half-assed or it's not the best in the world. So if you're building a McDonald's business, that's awesome. You can roll those things out and you just sell them at volume which means you need to have really clear acquisition strategies. But I would say that like we, our business is built around more of the Mercedes model. We never try to be the cheapest, never. We try to be the best. Uh, We don't do discounts. Um, We are very clear about who we allow and who we don't. If you have credit card debt, you cannot join our flagship courses. So we're very selective about our audience, and we expect them to be selective about us. I would say that for entrepreneurs, you really want to ask yourself, what kind of business do you want to run? And that trickles down a lot. It's not just, oh, I want to operate a Mercedes business because they're so cool. Mercedes is like very selective about what they do, how often they release products, et cetera. And so making those decisions can be the difference between you know mediocre, mediocrity or big, big success.
0: Well, and I think that also hugely plays into, again, I know our crowd, a lot of them were like, leaving day jobs to start their own business or are just sort of fell into the business they've started. And, and I think this speaks very heavily to getting yourself into the mindset that you're going to be around doing this for a while. I mean, not a lot of us really think about the longevity of what it is that we're building because we are doing business online and things go so quickly and all those things we hear all the time, or we just don't really commit to this thing that we're building in a way that has us looking 10 to 15 years down the line. I know that whenever I made the conscious decision to do this business where, you know, I had just been kind of freelancing for a while. And then I made up my mind that no, this is a business I will actively build. That mindset shift did tons of huge things for me. And I I think this speaks very heavily to that idea of of taking yourself seriously and taking the business that you are building seriously and taking the products that you're building for your business seriously and thinking of it in terms of like a long-term plan as opposed to, I just need to get through the next six months.
2: Yeah, totally agree. You know what? If you need to get through the next six months, get a job.
1: Yeah.
0: Tell you the truth. Do you know how
2: many people write me? And by the way, I have a whole course on that. Find your dream job or just use my free stuff. I don't care. I have so many people that write me. They're like, Ramit, should I join your course? Um, I really want to create a business. I love what you have to say. I uh, just got laid off or I quit my job. Like I'm, I have about three months of cash left and I really want to, I'm like, no, No. what are you talking about?
1: (laughs) You're like, buy yourself some food and get a job. (laughs) But
2: here's the craziest thing. When you tell people to get a job, especially entrepreneurs, it's very insulting to them. And I actually think that that's one of the most arrogant things you can do. How dare people think that they're too good to get a job? There's nothing wrong with a job at all. It's totally respectable. 98% of people have a job. And I just think about my parents coming here from India. What would they have done? The answer is they would have done anything um, to keep their family fed and clothed. And suddenly we have a bunch of people who are following these dreams of passive income and they think they're too good to get a job. I think you start by being financially secure. That's why we don't allow people with credit card debt because they make crazy decisions. Okay? Okay. And so you get your finances under control, you're calm, you're cool, methodical, and collected, and then you can have a long-term perspective on starting a business. If you're down to two months of money, I mean, just what kind of decisions are you going to make? So I like to just take a slower approach, a whisper approach, and when you can do that, when you can surround yourself with other entrepreneurs who are not just trying to make a quick buck, but like really thinking long-term, the kind of people you admire that can make all the difference in the world.
1: I love that, like just that intentionality behind it. And it's even, you know, a shift that Emily and I have experienced with creating this podcast. It started as our side hustle it organically grew into what it's grown into, but now this year we're like, okay, let's get intentional. What is our plan? yeah? Yeah. How does that feel? It feels so different. good. <laughs> and it does feel different because we've certainly have our hustles where we're like, okay, let's hunt, you know, but then it's the difference between hunting and farming, right? And we're super into, I think farming and kind of giving it all away. I know that's a philosophy that you believe in too, where you're giving as much good stuff away as you can so that you build your tribe, right?
2: Yeah. We, we give away 98% of our stuff. Our goal is always for our, our goal is to create free material. That's better than anyone else's paid stuff. And so if you, if you Google like the ultimate guide to personal finance or the ultimate guide to salary negotiation or social skills, just take a look and we'll let the work speak for itself. Uh, or you sign up for our email list where, you know, you can get our free emails for five years. Don't buy a thing. Enjoy it. Um, I kind of love what you just said about intentionality. You didn't start like knowing about long-term farming. and all. It's just like, hey, this is our side hustle. Let's just take it day by day. I love that. It's like you're climbing to the top of a mountain. You may not be able to see the peak yet, but every day it's just one foot in front of the other. Now you get to the next hill, and now you can see the next hill. That's like, it's like the world and your business unfolds in front of you, but we're not trying to jump from zero to the peak. We're trying to take it step-by-step, very methodically.
0: Yes.
1: (laughs) Which brings us full circle to (laughs) that, you know, running uh, three times in a week versus just running once a week, right? Like, Mm -hmm. just be where you are, make shit happen one step at a time. All right, Ramit, I don't want to take up too much of your time. Tell us about where... Um our listeners can find you what are you launching now what do you want to talk about where do you want people to find you
2: Okay we have a whole new site at growthlab.com everything relating to online business you want to know about copywriting we've got material we show you our actual test results from copywriting you want to know about monetization conversion finding a profitable idea or email marketing we teach all of that stuff at growthlab.com go there get on the newsletter we would love to show you um, our material, and like I say, 98% of it is free, and it's our goal to challenge you and to show you what's possible with your online business.
1: Nice, thank you. And how many years did you spend developing Growth Lab? <laughs> oh,
2: I mean, it's been 11 years in the making. It really? <laughs> so has. it's
1: all your best stuff.
2: Mm-hmm, absolutely, nice. and we're continuing to release it.
1: For me, it's been so nice talking to you. Thank you for lending us your time. I feel so lucky in my job that I get to learn from the best by interviewing them. So thank you.
2: Well, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for the time and for the
1: opportunity. Thank you for listening to Being Boss. Find show notes for this episode at lovebeingboss.com. Listen to past episodes and subscribe to new episodes on our website, on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher.
0: Did you like this episode? Head on over to our Facebook group by searching being boss on Facebook and join in on the conversation with other bosses or share it with a friend, do the work, be boss, and we'll see you next week.
1: tell you guys that there are 30% of you out there actually using fresh books. Our conversion rate is so high. Our listeners are actually using and loving and buying fresh books. So um the proof is in the pudding y'all. Try it out. <laughs> cut that out. <laughs> proof is in the pudding y'all. Keep it. Keep it. Don't no, cut that out. <laughs> anyway,
0: proof is in the pudding y'all the
1: proof is in the pudding (laughs) y'all like i'm from oklahoma right do not use that
0: as a blooper either my god it's funny